one of you is the monster. Monster? They're British, you know. Hello, I'm Chris Denton. And I'm Paul Monk. And we are a very British horror. And in fact, this is our 75th episode. Now, wow. we're going to, yeah, that's pretty good, isn't it? Uh, somehow, we've reached 75 <laughs> episodes. <laughs> right. And, and, and to, to mark this, we're going to be talking about a special film with a special guest. Paul, introduce both. Okay, so the special film we are talking about, I'm not entirely sure why it's special, but I don't know. <laughs> oh, there are lots of reasons why There's it's lots special. Of reasons. <laughs> oh, and we're going to be talking about the Amicus Film Asylum, and that, that wonderful voice you just heard then is none other than uh, Dan T.D. D. Valeski. Oh, I knew I'd mess up. Um, it's all right, Paul. It's not the <laughs> easiest name. I, um, I'm T.D. Velasquez, but you can call me Dan. Asking ask anyone, I count as a friend. And Brilliant. And, and he's from the uh, And Now the Podcast Starts podcast, which is, I always think is a fantastic name. Oh, thank That's you very much. Um, yeah. In fact, name, we, we named our podcast after a movie which I think was made in a like a double bill or, a, or um, a production block with the film we're about to talk about because it was made in the same year by the same director and, uh, and crew and everything. And now the screening starts. And yeah. It's not the greatest film ever made, but it's a great title, and we thought we'd rip it off for our horror podcast. If we did, so it is the the best title of a of a horror podcast I've ever heard, and also it, it is a film we've watched and and um, we did an episode about, and it's notable for uh, Peter Cushing's late, late, late appearance. Isn't it? <laughs> right. <laughs> well. You know, he was very, very busy in it's like 72, 73, 74. There are so many films. Um, our podcast started really back in, well, before the launch of our podcast, the, when I and my friends were first talking about doing podcasts at all, our first idea was to do a movie, a, a series, which was all about all the movies that Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee were in together. And we discovered, that there's basically two clusters. There's like about 25, 26 movies, but there really are two major clusters. The one is the late 50s and the other one is 72, 73, 74, when they just made loads. And those are just the ones that they're both in. Each actor yeah. was also making loads of other films at the same time. So, Well, uh, that's absolutely true. And in the early 70s, uh, both Cushing and Lee were spraying themselves very thinly. Well, yes. So it did make me wonder whether they could do sort of knock out two or three film appearances in in a, in a couple of days. <laughs> well, I think, I, just... I, think, I think absolutely that 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 was possibly the case. Um, and in in Asylum, where we've got Peter Cushing, but not not for long. It's obviously at, at the peak of this, and Chris, Christopher Lee. Um, clearly unavailable sadly although uh, an excellent cast uh, uh, anyway um and we'll, we'll come to that but i just wanted to say why i think asylum is a very very special film um just because that made the intro sound better okay <laughs> sorry about that <laughs> no no i mean we, we've ruined your intro plan <laughs> so, yeah. so what <laughs> it was because you realised it was 75th episode and you thought that's, that's <laughs> it should mark that somehow, it should be special well and, but, and it occurred to you just before you pressed record 
absolutely it's your jubilee episode, <laughs> yeah. well you, you, you know but 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 also um I mean, we look at the figures for the, the downloads, obviously, um, and there are some even downloads that people do. So thank you very much for that. But but also um, this, the classic era, they, den- they do tend to do a little bit better. Uh, do, do, you, yeah. do you find that? <laughs> do you find that? With, and now the podcast? Strangely, um, there's not a lot of... Uh... Uh, not a lot of method to the madness of, of which episodes are more popular. Some of we've basically done episodes on every single film in the Halloween series, and some have been very popular. Um, of those, uh, like Halloween three was a very popular one. Well, yeah, um, would be. Probably, I mean, that's that's the great film in the series, isn't it? After the first one, <laughs> well, somewhat, uh, yes, I, I'm completely <laughs> with you on that one. Um, and also, we did one about Alien three. And also Exorcist 3. There is a thing developing, isn't there? It's it's second sequels do very well (laughs) um, for some reason. Um, Yeah, um, the remit on um, another podcast stars is much wider because basically um, we just, we're all horror fans on it, but we're all from different, we have different areas of interest and we just talk about whatever comes up. So it's not just British horror and it's not just from a particular era. Um, And I, yeah, I wasn't really surprised when the Alien one did well because I think Alien has a very strong kind of online fan base. Um, yeah. I know of a particular YouTuber who you know does it professionally. Who, whenever the uh, the takings are a little bit low, he, he goes, "Well, I better put out a video about <laughs> an Alien film or the Terminator." Um, that <laughs> always lifts things up. So. Well, Alien Three, I'm going to claim is a British horror film, so you know yeah. we could de- we could definitely cover oh, that. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's very British. Yeah. Um, uh. Okay, but let, we better talk about Asylum or Asylum Three, as I'm now calling it. <laughs> for <those> reasons. <laughs> right. I wish. I wish there was an Asylum Three. <laughs> uh, okay, um, Paul, do, do you do you want to just give us a quick intro about what we're talking about? Okay, so it's a, an Amicus Portmanteau film. Um, this one has a wraparound plot where it's set in an insane asylum, which is probably not the politically correct term for that now. Um, I don't think you can be politically correct when the film is actually called Asylum. <laughs> oh, that's true. There's no well, way around. The US title's House of the Crazies, isn't it? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, yeah, any, any subtleties just thrown out the window in the US. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, and it essentially evol- involves a young uh, psychiatrist doctor um, heading up to this hospital for, for a job, job interview. Um, and when he gets there, the doctor in charge of the hospital sets him the task of identifying the previous doctor who is in charge of the hospital from one of the patients um, in, in order to get get the job and we hear the different stories of each patient it's essentially the basic plot so, yep yeah it's I an think ingenious wraparound i think i do as well yeah you know, the, the, most most of these kind of portmanteau movies that the, the individual stories don't emerge so naturally from the wraparound um, but yeah. in this one it's it's really it's a great plot in the wraparound 
and everything rises from that. That's one of the things I find it so strong, really. Sorry, Chris, you were going to say? Well, I was going to just agree with you because it, it's, it's, it's more or less unique for the uh, Amicus. They, they didn't really go for... Um, like a, a, a story to bridge the 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 the, the, the mini stories together. Mm-hmm. They, 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 it was quite often just some kind of device. Um, but yeah. like, like you know, Doctor Terror with the tarot cards. <laughs> but there wasn't really a story. But here we've got a mystery: who is Doctor Star? And yeah, yeah. and um, like the frame, the framing story stars Robert Powell as, yeah. as, as the young young Doctor and which. That was a real draw for me when I first saw this film when I was 12 and, and I mainly knew him from the detectives. Uh-huh. Detectives, oh no. Yeah, and, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and well, I think this was the first thing I'd ever seen him in where he's using his own or something like his own accent, not that Manchester accent that he did on the detective. Yeah. So, so, so um, I love Robert Powell and he's, he's made... Um, and a, a few horror films he was in the asphyx and um yeah. he was really good doing some readings of mr james oh um, those are great yeah yeah, yeah. I, re- I really love um, like his version of the mesotin is amazing it's really effective um oh, wow. okay but um yeah uh, like young young younger younger listeners would remember him from the jasper carrot show like you say <laughs> yeah <laughs> But but, yeah. but but he was also um, Hannay in the Thirty Nine yeah. Steps, Jesus of Nazareth. He was he was quite, yeah, quite and a big the, star. A bit the Hannay seventies, the Hannay TV series that was made in the eighties is very good as well. That, I, that I watched started. that. I watched yeah. that when that was on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, it's really good. We've got the box set. Yeah, that was, oh. the, that, that was one of the things my parents used to watch. Uh, right. I don't think I was ever that interested in it for some reason. I don't know why. Well, do you like okay. the, the 39 Steps, the 70s movie? Because that, I, I, love, I, I love that. That's that's um, like a Hitchcock pastiche, isn't it? Obviously, Hitchcock had directed the original. But yeah, um, yeah. anyway, anyway, Robert Powell. And um, the, the, the other, he played Dr. Martin. And the other doctor, uh, Dr. Rutherford, is played by Patrick McGee, not McNee, McGee. Again, we've <laughs> yeah. had this before. Um, I, I'm actually, I think he's in now the Screaming Stars, isn't he, Patrick McGee? He is, yeah, he is. exactly. <laughs> yeah. So. He, he actually turns up quite quite a lot. I'm not does. really all that aware of um, his sort of film or TV credits outside of a lot of horror films, really, or genre type. Clockwork Orange. Well, isn't that, yeah. that's him, isn't it? Yes, he's in. He, he's yeah. who can that be in Clockwork <laughs> Orange? And he, yeah. and he's in a, <laughs> He's in a wheelchair in that as well. So. Well, that's exactly well, that's what true. I was thinking. He obviously had good, good, good theatrical wheelchair skills. <laughs> I was looking into him a bit because we uh, talked about the Black Cat on our podcast a while ago, oh. which was his last film, and he was he, he that was made in 1981, and he died shortly afterwards. And he's only 60 in it. He wow! Looks, so he's about yeah. 50 in this. Uh, wow! You know. And it, but I can't imagine him ever looking young. I mean, <laughs> he, he's in Zulu, and he would have been my age. But it just seems. Wow. Uh, and and where he'd come from is apparently, apart from those movies that we've mentioned, uh, in the six in the fifties. Sorry, he did a lot of work. He's Northern Irish, and he did a lot of work with Samuel Beckett in the theatre. Right. Um, but how that led to to a this kind of mostly horror inflected screen <laughs> career. Um, I'm not sure. He did, 
he did do a lot of Shakespeare and his TV version of King Lear from the late 70s is a favourite of my friend Howard who appears on our, our podcast. I've not watched that yet. But I do find that he's, um, you know, there's that cliche about an actor who you'd, you'd be happy to listen to them read the telephone directory. And Patrick McGee actually is that. There's yeah. just something about the way he says anything, which is just brilliant. Yeah. But like in the Hammer film, Demons of the Mind, where the first line of dialogue you hear is Patrick McNee saying, Demons of the Mind. <laughs> just instantly gets you. <laughs> yeah, that's a slight, Demons of the Mind is a slightly controversial um, choice because, um, <laughs> you, you, you know, we, we watched... We've been watching these films a long time, and we, but we, we watched it when we were first interested in Hammer movies when we were essentially yeah. teenagers, and it was probably one of our least favourites. So we haven't <laughs> right. gone back to it. Although I'm so I'm always tempted because I love Michael Holden so much. And <laughs> yeah, he's he's in this. Yeah. No, I feel the same about it. I haven't really rewatched it. I, I've only seen it once, and that was like nearly twenty years ago. But, yeah. but the fact that McGee does that is the one thing that sticks in my mind for me. And also Michael Horden wandering around being a mad preacher guy. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's got Robert Hardy in as well. I'm really tempted. Well, I must, I'm, I'm really tempted to watch that again. <laughs> Although I do remember the disappointment I felt the first time still decades <laughs> later. Right. Right. Anyway, the third sort of um, cast member of the framing story is Cat Weasel. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, Jeffrey Bailden. Yeah. yeah. Play, playing uh, like an, an orderly um, Max, who whose task it is is essentially to ferry um, Doctor Martin but between the patients, so Doctor Martin can can um, yeah. Not, Spelt differently to the boots, by the way. Yeah. Can so it's it is Doc Martin. It's the yeah the Martin Blue series was a spin-off of Asylum <laughs> all the time, and we never realised. Yeah. No. Yeah. Exactly. But um, and and then um, and then it's straight into the the first story. Is it Doctor Star? Doctor B Star? Um, and and mm. the first story is called. Frozen Fear and, and features yes. a, a patient called Bonnie, uh, played by Barbara Parkins, an actor I'm not that familiar with. And, no, I, I don't no. know anything else she's in. But she, she gives her story about how she came to be in the asylum. Mm. Yeah. Um, which essentially, because because uh, I'll, I'll I'll do the uh, the summarising duties for this one. Uh, essentially, it's. Um, her, she plays like the the mistress of a uh, much older guy, um, Walter, played by Richard Todd, and uh, Walter's trapped in this marriage with Ruth, played by Sylvia Sims, um, and um, but basically we discover that Ruth is into um, some voodoo-like uh, faith slash thing, which Walter hates, and. Um, but that's not the main reason um, that Walter doesn't like her, though. Um, and he says, look, I got you this uh, fridge freezer, this chest freezer in the basement. Oh, that's lovely. That, I got, and I also got you this. That, <laughs> you, well, yeah, that is Sylvia Sims. I mean, you know, great film star, Ice Cold and Alex and all that. But frankly, she deserves to be remembered for pulling off that line. Oh, it's a freezer. <laughs> no, I've always wanted one. <laughs> but, then, but then in 1972, they were probably quite, that was probably quite a, a new and exciting thing. 
a chest freezer. Yes, for a chic, yeah. I guess. Yeah, we've never we've never had one. So, 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 and 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 the the purpose of the freezer is a bit weird, right? Because you think uh, it's a chest freezer to store the body in, but then actually they don't want to store the body in it. <laughs> I mean, it does happen briefly, but then uh, Bonnie's like, no, we've got to get rid of the body. Yeah, like I said, I'd never thought of that before. Like he, yeah. he'd only thought as far as putting it in the chest freezer, and he thought it'd be fine. They'll never look there. No one will ever suspect. Um, so, but what happens is he hacks her to pieces with um, with, with an axe off yeah. off screen. You see the first blow, and we sort of, but then then that's it. But but then it cut back to him. He's wrapped all the body parts up in. Um, uh, wrapping paper uh, like Why? post, post yeah um, yeah it's like greaseproof <laughs> paper or something um, yeah and, and but, then but, yeah i'm not okay. sure why he's done that though that's that seems like a very odd thing to do would you do um, that if you were storing meat in your chest freezer would you wrap it in paper first maybe that's i mean maybe maybe that's maybe that's something that you would do pre-cling film or freezer bags right. or something i don't know um but then that assumes that he's going to Want to? I mean, it doesn't. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't disguise. <laughs> it doesn't well, disguise. Well, it's the Roald Dahl story. Yeah. It's one way of getting rid of the evidence. Roald Dahl yeah. wrote a story where somebody kills someone with a leg of lamb. Leg of lamb. Yeah. yeah. Tells tells of the unexpected, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, and and Robert Block actually wrote for Robert Block, who wrote this, wrote for yeah. Tells of the Unexpected. In fact, wrote uh, spent decades writing these exactly this kind yeah. of story, didn't he? Um, kind of um, short horror stories with twists in the tail um, oh, yeah. now if i was cynical i would say that that the um real reason for wrapping them all up in paper is is so that it's easier to hide the the special effects governments <laughs> that move them around uh, <laughs> well, maybe yeah, maybe i i guess i i'm somewhat convinced by that argument but i do think that <laughs> it works in a horror sense because uh it suggestion. keeps the gore off the screen it yeah. keeps it in your mind suggestion suggestion it's like yeah. the hat box in barton fink or, or indeed seven if you if you're like sure. Yeah. Um, it's a suggestion that could be more powerful than just having a dismembered corpse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But also, no, I, and things like the uh, severed head where it's breathing and you can see the, the yeah. breath puff, puffing up the paper, that's that's really great. It's that's gruesome. quite effective. It's quite yeah. effective without actually seeing oh, anything. It, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it's great. And I th thought it was really creepy, but it, yeah, it just it's a bizarre yes. thing to have done because he's done it quite neatly. So he would have had to have sat and spent quite a while well, doing I did, it. I did notice that when I rewatched it, you know, you, you get a very, very long sequence. You don't see him chopping it up, but you kind of... No. The, the camera pans around the kitchen and around the house, and you hear the sounds of him chopping for a yeah. long time. Um, <laughs> that's, I guess, that's the director's way of, of saying, this is going to be quite elaborate, what he's doing right now. Yeah. And, you know... Uh, and the director was Roy Ward Baker, who was one of the great horror directors of the period. Yes. Uh, yeah. And um, I, I owe a lot to Roy Ward Baker. I'd like to um, say a little bit about why I wanted to talk about this movie, because you were very kind enough, kind enough to ask me what I'd like to talk about on this. And um, I thought about what were the, the movies that kind of made me interested in horror in the way that I am. And, this is a real key one. Um, another key one is Halloween. Uh, both of these movies were taped 
by uh, taped for me off TV, uh, uh, Sky TV, I think, by my lovely sister, my older sister Maureen, who passed away uh, last year, bless her. And um, uh, I, I just realised when I was thinking about it this time, because I've seen Asylum tons of times, uh, but not for a while, and I did rewatch it for this. Um, Halloween and Asylum, what they did was they made me realise that horror could be fun and not just disturbing, because basically I was very squeamish and very basically a wimp when I was <laughs> younger. And, um, uh, and, and I just found the whole idea of these kind of horror stories traumatic. Um, but these two movies, which aren't... Uh, particularly violent or gruesome. It's all about suggestion. Um, they have a sort of tongue-in-cheekness to them. They're fundamentally not very serious. And I, I suddenly realised they're both kind of about mental health, but not taking the subject at all seriously. I mean, if you <laughs> if you regard either Asylum or Halloween <laughs> as having any kind of serious statement about mental illness, then they're no. really offensive. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, more, more so Halloween. Asylum does at least, you know, pay lip service to the idea that these are people. They should be treated with understanding yeah. and stuff like that. Um, but at the end of the day, they are being used to just kind of drive spooky stories. Um, but very effective ones. And um, uh, well, yeah, I, 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 I want to agree with that. I, I, and I recognise... Um, like a, a similar s- s- story. I mean, with for me, of the, the first horror films I watched were um, Taste the Blood of Dracula. I mean, actually, this kind of horror film, Taste the Blood of Dracula, yeah. and and also Lust for a Vampire. And, and right. after, after those two, I was I was I was hooked on <laughs> Hammer movies. But I had right. pre- previously been extremely like couldn't watch more than the first ten yeah. minutes of American Werewolf of London. Uh, right. See, Chris, Chris, and I sort of have. Uh, well, have very similar um, origin stories with with horror movies, if you like. Because uh, again, the first one I probably saw was American Werewolf in London, and um, I think my parents had let us stay up to watch it as a bit of a sort of experiment, I suppose. Um, we got as far as when the two guys leave the pub and right. act on the moors. <laughs> which is a sequence where you see nothing. That is really scary, though. And we were just terrified. Me and my sister were just terrified and went, yeah, that was it. We, we didn't want to watch anymore. I but, think um, if I'd have seen that film when I was young, just the sound of the wolf, that it, yeah. you know, the howl when they walk out on the moors would have finished me off. It's an amazing noise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and then, yeah, but, and, and um, I'm saying this an awful lot in episodes now, but... Uh, Chris and I basically met at school and we went to school together. So, um, yeah, I, I, we, we both discovered the, the, the Hammer films at the same time. And I think it was Taste the Blood of Dracula from, wasn't it, an ex-rental VHS or something? We, we probably got... Wow. So, so there was the wall of range, yeah. Uh, which was because we're not talking about uh, we, we're talking about the late eighties. So they weren't yeah. they weren't like particularly popular at this point. We just found them, <laughs> didn't we? Um, yeah. But wow. but the thing I wanted to say about Halloween is that's famous, isn't it? For for there isn't a drop of blood in it. And you, you yeah, think yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's it's all done with suggestion. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and. I should just mention that the reason we got talking like this is because we talked about the director, Roy Ward Baker. Yes. And um, 
the one of the films I had seen before this was Quatermass and the Pit. Mm, yeah. So um, I, I do remember watching this and having that recognition. Oh, it's it's Roy Ward Baker again, and and you know again being finding it a complete masterpiece, which I, I sort of think it is. We'll get into some of the less impressive aspects of it, I'm sure, but um, I, I love it so much. Roy Baker, of course, um, in his earlier career was like a, a more notable mainstream film director. He was known as Roy Baker then. He added the Roy the Ward to his name because of uh, the fact that there was a sound editor also called, called Roy Baker. You guys may know this and your listeners may know it. Um, and it was causing all kind of problems with tax, the two <laughs> gentlemen, because the, t- the Inland Revenue thought that someone had two incomes, so they're getting taxed twice. <laughs> so eventually Roy Baker, the director, went, I am right, I'm Roy Ward Baker now. And the movie that he decided to do that on was Quatermass in the Pit, which is, was his first Hammer film. And from that point, nobody really associated him with his previous movies and TV shows. Like he directed A Night to Remember, you know, the greatest movie about the Titanic disaster. And he directed... <laughs> Not loads a James of Cameron ev- fan, then. But yeah, well, yeah. no, I am a huge James Cameron fan, but... Um, yeah. I'm huge, but I've, I've never watched... Well, to be fair, I've only seen that to remember once. I've only seen Titanic once. I, I need to watch them both again. I mean, but, I'm not arguing with your appraisal. It's just... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I actually... I love James Cameron, but um, but there's just something about... Um, well, look, I'm a Titanic geek, and and I remember when I watched A Night to Remember, the only thing that disappointed me was the fact that it was made... Uh, because it was made before the wreck was discovered and they didn't know that the ship had broken in half... Right. And it sank. So therefore, the model shots in the night to remember showed it sinking all in one piece. And I remember thinking, oh, that's wrong. <laughs> but everything else about yeah. it was great. You know, it's like Kenneth Moore and um, and Honor Blackman and, and David McCallum, amazing cast. Mm. Um, but it, yeah, so and no, Roy Baker's stuff when he was Roy Baker was, was really good, but then he, he changed to Roy Ward Baker and it was like, right, he's now the horror man. And, yeah. you know, you, you guys, I really enjoyed the episode you guys did about Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. is like, I almost <laughs> imagine him being slightly baffled, you know, <laughs> being out in Hong Kong going, what the hell's going on? Yeah. And, uh, um, <laughs> you know, oh, I've got to let the, the, the Kung Fu guys direct this bit. All right, fine. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I, I love that movie as well. It's, I uh, do, yeah. yeah. It, it, it's a favourite of mine. It's just really daft. And he, carried yes. on, he carried on working, didn't he, Robert Baker? So, I mean, I, I know, like, even in the 90s, he was directing episodes of The Good Guys, I noticed. <laughs> but, but, was it? I didn't know no, that. Okay. <laughs> so so no. I, think, I think he had a very, very um, yeah, he had, he had a long career. But anyway, he yeah. He died in 2010, and he was you know writing books about his career and direct and, and doing director's commentaries and that until fairly close to, to dying i think the dvd or the blu-ray of asylum came out in 2006 according to what i've just been reading on wikipedia and it's <laughs> yeah. got a commentary by him on it and yeah. um oh and another movie of his that i do love and i think is legitimately great i don't know if you guys have covered it is dr jekyll and sister hyde i think that's fantastic yes well, yeah, yes, and I love Ralph Bates as well. So, yeah. yes, right, <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Uh, my favourite uh, Roy Wood Baker film is The Vampire Lovers. But, That's one I've never seen, actually. 
Oh, oh, oh it's it, it, it's it's a really good one. <laughs> it, and it's right. Hammer's last great hit, I think, as well. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's a that, that that's a very strong strong movie. And anyway, any, anyway, so and and, and it actually made before this one, I think, because um, yeah, and Hammer will. But not, this was 1972, and Hammer were already in decline by by this time. Um, but Amicus had a slightly different trajectory, didn't they? They were actually, you know, some some of their bigger, more famous the films that we recognise from them today um, were, were still were still being made, and and they yeah, so they 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 went on till the the mid 70s, maybe just slightly afterwards, and then and then um, was it. Milton Sabotsky and Max Rosenberg had a very big falling out. Yeah. yeah. And that's what finally killed Amicus. <laughs> but, you know, the, the spirit of it continued because Sabotsky carried on making his anthology movies. Uh, he did. Like the, Un- the Uncanny, which I've never seen still. Oh, um, okay. So then The Monster Club in 1980, which again is directed by Royal Ward Baker. So it's kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it is it is kind of a genre in decline. But, but these, I mean, Hammer's last movie was seventy six, wasn't it? So the Devil of Daughters. So yeah, the last, spirit... that's the last yeah. horror movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah until yeah. unless you count the new ones. But yes. well, until <laughs> yeah. the Woman in Black and, and yeah. That. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, okay, all right. That I, I so I think to to go back a little bit to uh, so actually, there's not. This is a very simple little story because yeah. um, the the bits of the dead woman basically murder uh, Walter and then they drive Bonnie mad by, by uh, and, and also um, so like like the hand the the, hand, the wrapped up hand gets on her face and she tries to whack it off with the axe doesn't she and yeah. then we see yeah. when we go back to the I, uh, I love asylum, the way she's got a, a, so, a bit of a scar which which yeah. you think is going to be a lot worse frankly yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah well i wonder if when watching it this time i didn't think is that supposed to make you think that actually there was a hand on her face for real because the axe mostly went into the hand and only just sort of slightly grazed her face um <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, um, I, I'm sure the way that was written, she was supposed to be very disfigured. <laughs> yeah, but the awesome, makeup but, yeah. didn't quite work for it because <laughs> she's yeah, yeah. She 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 looks basically red line down the side of her cheek. But in some ways, it was that that kind of threw me a little bit because because yeah, you could kind of see where where it was going, and and you knew that there was something wrong with her face because she sits with her back to Robert Powell at the beginning. Mm. So I was I was watching it thinking, yeah, it's going to be her face is going to be horrific, and then a little bit of me was thinking, this is the nineteen seventies, early seventies film, so the makeup is going to not be that great, <laughs> <laughs> and this is going to be real disappointing. And then she turns around, and it's just this this little kind of scar, and I thought, oh, that's actually that's actually quite good. And then she get, then she does the little deranged thing with her hair. And, well, so, so there's uh, one. Yeah, thing. yeah. yeah there's, there's one oh, thing. Actually, that's quite good. It is. It is. It's just. It's just not what you expect. No. Again, that's, yeah. that's maybe expectations of the genre. Um, um, from stuff that came later as well, probably. But um, yeah. there's, there's, there's one. There's one like famous thing about this, um, which, which is when the the bits of the body are attacking Bonnie. Um, you can quite clearly see in some. I actually. 
I didn't see it this time. I watched the Blu-ray and I didn't see it. But, but I remember watching this before on video and you could quite see, clearly see the special effects man like just holding and waving around the dismembered arm. It was. Well, it's funny you say that, Chris, because I do remember on a previous viewing that it, it was pretty clear at certain points that there was you could see like the puppetry or something. But yeah. I didn't notice this time. I thought so, it was really quite well done. Yeah, so, so I, I think that what's happened in the book the version that we've previously seen is that um, basically it's one of those where um, they've, the, 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 they've taken the panning and scanning has showed you bits of the recording that you weren't meant to see, ah, yeah. essentially. Um, because, you know, like sometimes that happens with boom mics and stuff, doesn't yeah. it, on TV versions. And I think that's happened uh, because you, you mentioned there was a new version of this film uh, made for that dvd release in 2006 actually and i think that that new version has probably fixed the special effects the shot right because I, di- I just didn't see it at all but i remember it as being really like horrific like so clear yeah because i when i first watched this film i watched it when i was on holiday in wales bizarrely like, like family holiday years ago when i was um when i was a teenager um i had to i had to pause we would have then been um a video i had to pause it just to see had i really just seen that had i just really seen like a guy's hand waving it around (laughs) but 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 this time nothing so i I think i i I didn't see it either what i did notice though was there was um one limb either an arm or a leg that was i noticed a a sort of very a a wire at the back Uh, of it that that was obviously being pulled to cause it to do the okay but that's but that's not that's not exactly like but, but yeah. no, exactly. it's, it's not the same thing. <laughs> but, uh, okay. Um, but, but I actually like this little segment. I thought it was quite fun. Um, no, I and, think it's perfect. Pretty yeah. much. Uh, I mean, there's only three characters in it, and you know exactly what you need to know. Yeah. Um, and it's it's got a certain amount of um, tongue in cheekness to it. You know, like the resting pieces. Like, um, <laughs> yeah, which Richard Todd delivers with, like, he's obviously thought, I can't do this straight faced. I have to do it with a kind <laughs> of sneer as if the guy is making a statement about his own sick sense of humor when he says it. But he's, he's a, he's, I mean, he's a good actor, isn't he? And he manages to convey that Walter is uh, an alcoholic, doesn't he? He's weak, yeah. but, but, um, but, but, also you know trapped and, and looking for a way out um so- i also think it's kind of nice that the, the couple in it the married couple are you know richard todd from the Dabin busters and sylvia simpson rice cold in alex it's like this, <laughs> this is what happens to the, the the stars of the great war movies they they get stuck in a loveless marriage and end up chopping each other to bits so, so uh, and actually um this is going to sound weird but the the, the because their scenes um, with each other are antagonistic, or there's an undercurrent of uh, coldness because their 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 relationships all were broken down. Um, it kind of reminded me almost. Um, it was very cold and lint like David Lynch. It, it reminded me of some scenes in Lost Highway when where you've got a similar depiction of a relationship. It's really kind of um, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's very she- successful, but it's also quite it's also quite hard to to She's watch. It's very very. Fair. 
yeah. she's very explicitly controlling, isn't she? Like, and yeah. she basically says to him, I know you hate being married to me, but tough, you are married to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I think the thing is, is, is that they're, they're, these are short segments. So uh, they're just trying to be super efficient with getting the points across. So yes. I think that's, that's, that's some of the reason why it appears that way. Because it's very much like, okay, there's this thing, this thing, this thing, which indicates that this person is like this, because we don't have time to do, you know, any other way. But I think that works. Yeah, I think it's a shorthand, and it's used really effectively. I think it's a great little story. I I think that there's something else that makes it a bit strange and lynching. To, to, to me which is the weird use of music in this film so, so there is <laughs> okay. a guy there is a guy that's credited as having done all the music but i think it's a lie um because like the, the opening ah. so the opening music and, and the uh the closing theme uh, apparently it's public domain classical music yes um, it's night on the bear mountain by mazolski yeah which um, is yeah. really yeah. evocative but 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 then um as far as I could tell, there's hardly any incidental music through, through the that the, um, the, there is in one, the second story, isn't there? But that's another piece of public domain classical yeah. music. It's it, it's yeah. it's like it's like they they didn't go for the James Bernard score at all, but they didn't admit that they hadn't. <laughs> so... Well, no, I, I think in a funny way, it, maybe I I think it works because I'll always whenever I hear that music. Uh, I always think, oh, that's the theme from Asylum, uh, rather <laughs> yeah. than whatever Mazorgsky wrote it for. Um, I do think that Douglas Gamley probably did arrange the music. Yeah. He's, he's the credited composer. and Because on some of the other Amicus anthologies that he is credited with scoring, that again, they're built, the scores are built around classical pieces, which I think you can tell is his arrangement. Yeah. Uh, I think in... Um, Tales from the Crypt, it's Takata and Fugue, um, and Vault of Horror, the something else. But they're all kind of done in this wham-bam, massively raucous <laughs> style, yeah. which is very much Douglas Gamley. And it's kind of, it's it's almost like even less subtle than James Bernard <laughs> in a way, which is um, yeah, quite I think an achievement. Right. Well, I thought, <laughs> yeah. What I thought was, was sort of, slightly odd about some of the music is they seems it seemed to be dramatic in 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 odd places um <laughs> yeah oh so, you know it's sort of so you're thinking okay i know what they're doing they're trying to build some sort of tension with the music here but it's and it just seemed to me it seemed like it was in odd places and uh, people it, walking down a street or it's, it's almost yeah, like he's just <laughs> driving to the asylum. It, well, yeah, but well, it's, it's almost yeah. just like he's pressing play on the tape recorder. <laughs> but no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, although I do think that the, the opening with Powell driving up to the asylum and, and just walking it to the door with that music playing is a really great intro. I agree. Um, I, I agree. I, I just agree. rewatched. Uh, the other Roy Ward Baker Amicus anthology, which is Vault of Horror, yeah. which tries to go for a similar opening um, because it's it's got the kind of wham bam Douglas Gamley music, and it's just people arriving at the, the location. <laughs> but in that film, it's like London on a sunny day. It's in the tower block, <laughs> and some blokes get in the lift, 
and you've got like Tom yeah. Baker or Daniel Massey standing in a lift pressing buttons, and the music's going. Dun, 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 Whereas somehow with with Powell on a lonely road and it's misty yeah. and foggy and it just it, it all kind of and works. it's a big it's yeah. a big gothic old building isn't it as well yeah so yeah else, which but... is very much like the the university build the, the library at the university I went to I used to say to people doesn't this look a bit like an asylum oddly <laughs> the, uh, the the teachers seem to find that kind of offensive but. <laughs> Uh, the, the, okay. the other thing, sorry, while we're briefly dwelling back on the, the sort of opening bit, see, this is what we do, we tend to dart all over the place. Sure. Um, there was another bit that I thought was odd, which is um, when Robert Powell goes into the, goes up the stairs and there's all these drawings that it yes. lingers on. Yeah, I, yeah. I was thinking, With some great camera rolls. It's yeah. Like, you know, and and just... they're, they're great drawings. But I, I remember thinking, what, what, what's the significance of these? It's all kind of 18th century prints of bed of some guy getting taken yeah. to bedlam. It's like a, yeah, yeah, yeah. a series of them. Which yeah. I could kind of got what the connection was, but it's like, why are we lingering on these for so long? But also, you've got to ask yourself, why have the uh, organisers of the asylum? decided to put these on the wall it's like not the kind of no. atmosphere you want to create when patients arrive or visitors um but and again that that sequence which is um a mazorgsky yeah it's just a huge musical sequence that just goes on for about three yeah. minutes yeah. with just power looking at these pictures um but i i do think it's kind of great because the pictures are cool and there's again uh Baker and the cameraman Dennis Coop do some great kind of uh, camera rolls and stuff to to make those pictures really <laughs> dramatic. Like the yeah. camera goes three hundred and sixty yeah. degrees and all that. I think they do something similar, or, or, or Baker does. I don't know if it's Dennis Coop in uh, the Monster Squad. I think there's a whole a kind of story told within that using pictures, but I haven't right. watched that film in a long time, so. It's, it's on Amazon Prime. We've considered doing an episode on it. If, but, oh, right. Yeah. Not, not sure we could completely face it, but we might have to after this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. um, okay. Um, I think we should, I should move us on <laughs> to the second yeah. story. Uh, sure, but, yeah. but, but, but just one other quick thing. Obviously, she's Bonnie. Yeah. Um, uh, we know that Dr. Star is Dr. B. Star. Yeah. Um, this every single time so each of the patients and that we meet has a name beginning with b and is there any reason for that yeah yeah so so because because it's that they could be the doctor uh star couldn't they so Ah, they think dr star the the name has to be him a b so that's that's what it is and that's why the next one we go to he says seamlessly linking um (laughs) is bruno yeah (laughs) who's some kind of um, German, Germanic, anyway, Taylor. Um, yeah, I, and... I, I, I think I was trying to work out where he's supposed to be from. I think maybe they're like Russian Jews. Yeah, that, that they they they've got a sense that they feel a bit like they've wandered out of Fiddler on the Roof. Yes. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so played played by Barry Morse, who's a, a, a another guy whom we we see a lot in the the this era. Um, who I remember from Space 1999. Yes, yeah, of yes, course. Yeah. Professor <laughs> Ivor Bergstrom or something. Yeah, Victor he's, Bergstrom. He's quite bad, isn't it? 
<laughs> in Can't which wouldn't. in in this or the other? No, in in Space Nineteen Ninety Nine. Well, well it, I, mean, I mean, Jerry Anderson wasn't known for his direction of humor. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, dear. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not slagging off Jerry Anderson. No, 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 no. <laughs> I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so let's, let's um, you know, pausing to say how much I like Thunderbirds. <laughs> let's um, <laughs> let, let, let's um, just talk quick, quickly. Um, Dan, do you want to give us a quick rundown of this sure. story, which is called uh, The Weird Tailor? In The Weird Tailor, uh, Bruno, played by Barry Morse, is um, a, um, a uh, immigrant tailor who's down on his luck as he explains that he has a scene at the start of the story where um, the horrible Mr. Stebbins, played by John Franklin Robbins, comes around and says, I want your rent. And you've got one week to give it me. And and Bruno tries to explain, look, we don't make money anymore. Nobody comes to the shop anymore. We used to do so well. But Stebbins isn't interested and won't take soft stories. He says, you get me the money by Saturday morning. Um, and Bruno then has to explain to his wife, who's played by an actress called Anne Furbank, of the situation they're in, how they desperately need money soon. And almost by magic, a figure appears in, in the doorway. This is Smith, played by Peter Cushing, who commissions Bruno to create a suit to very um, uh, detailed specifications that Smith provides and says, you must only work on this suit between the hours of midnight and 5 a.m. Um, so, but, I, but he says, I will pay you £200 to do it, which I guess is... A bit like saying you can have ten thousand pounds in today's money. Ah, ah, I, I can tell you because I, oh, I worked it out. Oh wow! Okay. I, I looked it up. So apparently, two two hundred pounds in nineteen seventy two would be about two thousand seven hundred and seven pounds now. Right. Well, what's the percent of dollars, Paul? <laughs> No, that's Paris. No, no. That's... So, so about five thousand dollars or something. For oh, yeah. Sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, pretty decent for a week's work, bad. anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, fair enough. I, I, I take that deal. So he works all week to create the suit, and it's ready on Friday. And he goes to deliver it to Smith, hoping that Smith will give him the money so that he can pay off Mister Stebbins the following morning. However. Mr. Smith says, I don't have any money at all. I will have soon. But um, now that you've made this suit for me, my son can return. And then soon we will have money again. And I'll be able to pay you. And Bruno's like, no, no, I, I want money now. Um, a struggle breaks out. Smith is accidentally killed. and But not before it's been revealed that his son is, in fact, deceased. And... Uh, Smith has basically sold his entire fortune and everything in his house. You can tell how how penniless he is because when Bruno knocks on his door, um, uh, Smith comes to the door with a candle <laughs> um, <laughs> lighting his way and has to kind of uh, what he kind of has to guide through Bruno through the darkness of this house. At one point, he says, "There are two steps there. Mind mind yourself." Uh, because it's so dark, he can't see anything. But basically, his son has died, and uh, Smith has uh, has purchased this book of black magic, which cost him his entire fortune. 
And the idea is this book has told him that you can resurrect your son if you create this suit. But now that's, uh, that's not going to happen. And um, Bruno uh, is terrified that he'll be um, arrested for the murder. So he, he, he goes home, he takes the suit back home. He's going to burn the book. He tells his wife to burn the suit. He doesn't want anyone to know about it. But um, because the wife has uh, quite, it's kind of seeded in, I don't know, it's very subtly hinted, but basically the, the wife is quite fond of their tailor's dummy who's in the window. <laughs> so she puts the bright white suit on the tailor's dummy and says, maybe if you wear this, people will be attracted to come into the shop. And the suit being a magic necromancer suit brings the tailor's dummy to life, which then attacks Bruno. And that's the, um, the cliffhanger of the story. Well, the actual end of the story is Barry Morris going, somewhere in the city, he is alive. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so. Very good. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so the whole sort of dummy thing made me, made me laugh, actually, with the wife. Because she actually says that she... Um, she talks to the, to, to the dummy, yes, um, when, when she's alone. She calls him yeah. Otto. Just, she Otto, calls him Otto. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. she made the name for him. Yeah. But, I mean, the, the dummy's kind of rescuing her because... Yeah, that's true. Because, because yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, she, uh, she's fighting with, with, with Bruno, isn't yeah. she? Isn't she? Um, yeah, because Bruno doesn't want her... He, he wants her to hide the evidence of the, of the death of Mr. Smith. So he's like, yeah. Yeah. He almost goes to rough her up, and and that's what causes Bruno to spring to life and, and be her rescuer. Yeah. So, um, so, so, yeah, it's not amazingly clear that it's such a problem that, that Otto's alive now because you know Bruno's the evil one, not Otto. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, I mean, but he's yeah, not really Otto, evil, just desperate, isn't he? Bruno's desperate, but yeah, but, but Otto might be quite nice. You know, he's, he's obviously a gentleman. Yeah. He is. could be a better tailor. That shot might now be doing well <laughs> with Otto. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and yeah, um, I'm just going to uh, look at Wikipedia because I just I think her name's Anna, the wife, isn't she? Um, yeah. Oh, no, that's yeah. the actress's name, I think, on this. No, she's um, Anna as well. Oh, yeah. She, yeah, the, she's, the actress is called Anne. Anne Furbank. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and what blew my mind was when I looked this up on Wikipedia, do you know what Anne Furbank's latest movie was? I do not. She was in Star Wars: The Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> wow! What, Good she, heaven! Uh, she... <laughs> have you guys seen that movie? Yeah! Oh, yeah! She's the old lady at the end who says, "Oh, uh, I'm, who I'm are on you?" Tatooine. On Tatooine! Yeah. Wow! Yeah! 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 <laughs> she, she closes the whole Skywalker saga. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow! And you know, considering that that series of movies started with Peter Cushing, I find it kind of appropriate that it ends with Anne Fairbank. <laughs> that, that is an that is an amazing fact. That is the kind yeah, of brilliant. you know thing we would never get to on our on our own. So no. thank, thank you for letting. Well, to, to be fair, I only read it on Wikipedia, so therefore it may not actually be true. But that's no, what no, Wikipedia I'm, says. I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure it's true. Wow. Um. So my my main point about this this story is this is where you get your two days worth of Peter Cushing, isn't it? Yeah. So, yes. <laughs> he, he, he's brilliant as Smith. He, um, he really is. Yeah. I always feel slightly uncomfortable when he's ca- in the early seventies when his characters are dealing with grief because we yes. we know yeah, yeah. we know his personal circumstances then. But uh, and it be, yeah. So it's 
but it, it's a very affecting performance, and I think that, that it, it's, he, he comes in quite quiet. So you sort of think, because because again, it's quite he's quite a sort of you think he might come in with a big theatrical entrance. It's or sinister, isn't it? But, yeah. but it's actually dialed cool. right down. Mm. I think mm. that I think that's really good. And it's all in in, yeah. in shadow and stuff. It, yeah, it, making it kind of creepy and what the hell hold this guy on, and then in the second scene. It's, Second and final scene. That's that's when you 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 see his situation and you see the sadness in it. Yeah. So I mean, obviously, um, it it it's excellent, but he's not a main character in it. So this is what we talked about about him him being spread very very thinly. I mean, but with with these kind of films, so you can do this yeah. effectively. You can have you can have two days of Peter Cushing, and it doesn't seem like uh like a waste. It's not like uh, like in Deathline, where you have like one scene of Christopher Lee, and then you just go, "Well, where's Christopher Lee for the rest of the film?" You can yeah. See. yeah, yeah, and it clearly wasn't there on the same day as Donald Pleasance either. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, 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 there's a story behind that, isn't there? But, um, yeah. um, uh, I, I don't know that story. Have you guys done an episode on Deathline? Yes, yeah, so we, 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 yeah. we recently. Um, they 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 were. But their heights were so different that, um, right, okay. that, 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 that the director couldn't put them in the same shot as each other. <laughs> that's, right. that's why. That's why yeah. it's done like that. <laughs> so, right. I can, I, okay, I can believe that. Right. <laughs> but I, it's interesting that you've just pointed out that Peter Cushing is only two scenes. Of course, he is. But I, did, I hadn't thought of that because it feels like there's more of him. Yeah. And I, I think that this story is probably the best bit of the film although I, I love most of it and I think that it's a it, even though it has the daft ending with the reanimated tailors don't we it's basically a tragedy you yeah, know yeah, if yeah. um and and you really feel for Smith when he's talking about his son who's, who's passed away and obviously yeah. as you say Chris it does feel very raw because of Cushing's actual bereavement at the time and, and um, that factor in in most of his performances means that mid seventies Cushing is a different beast to late fifties, early sixties. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and and in a way, he does play these more kind of fragile characters whose emotional arcs are kind of too big for the movies they're in. But I do think it just makes him even better as a screen presence. Um, yeah. You know, you really feel for for them all. Even the, the horrible guy he plays in Twins of Evil has oh, yeah. moments where you you realise how kind of sincere uh, he is in his horribleness, and um, Cushing just plays them all completely for real. You can you can kind of even even imagine that Grandma Tarkin probably had like a tragic backstory. <laughs> Cushing would be great at, at, at playing, but they just never bothered to shoot that. But there, there, there is a book. There is a book. <laughs> sure, there is. <laughs> um, uh, right. So, there, so that oh, Paul. There, sorry. There, there is a. I think there is a uh, one sort of happy, bright moment that comes out of this story, and mm. I think that that somewhere there there is a, a fish out of water comedy film about uh, a shop mannequin called Otto in a shiny white suit. Right. <laughs> I think that's yeah, the mannequin in the white suit. Yeah. 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 Mannequin in the city. Well well 
Well, of course, there were there, there were there was a big eighties comedy with the mannequin that comes to life. Wasn't there? <laughs> That's a very different mannequin, Chris. What, yeah, what, but you say you say that. <laughs> you say well, you know, no no aspersions on Kim Cattrall's acting ability. <laughs> uh, no, that's a major movie in my adolescence as well. Um, I'm even tempted to watch the sequel, Mannequin on the Move. Um, yeah. <laughs> which was Christy that, that... Swanson, aka Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the original. Um, yeah, yes, who, who who's who's now um one of Donald Trump's cheerleaders on Twitter, apparently. Oh, no, is she? Okay. Yeah. Oh. Uh, yes. Um, okay. Um, right. Do we have anything else to say about this, or shall we move on to story number three? I think we can move on to story number three. Which is Lucy Comes to Stay. Paul, I think it was your turn to do our, our summary. It is. Uh, yep. So there, this is a character called Barbara. Mm, B. B for Barbara, yep. yep. Who's played by Charlotte Rampling? Who's hmm. um, a big star, actually. Was she? Star. I was. I was trying to work is, out. Yeah. I was trying to work out if <laughs> she was a big star when when this was made. Well, um, George, Georgie Gill was 1966. So. Okay, right. So, how old was she? Because she looks very young. I mean, I know that part of that is that she's kind of dressed like a schoolgirl throughout it. Yeah, it just makes her look younger than. So she's I think born in 46. Right. Okay. So, so just my dad. Um, right. So yeah. So uh, and she is basically being driven home by her brother, um, uh, and she she's had a stay in in an asylum. Uh, but as as is, is all better now. Um, yes. And and they get back to to the, the their home, and he's got a nurse there to look after her. Um, and then she's going to, um, they've sort of told her that she, she's not going to take these pills from the hospital anymore. She's going to do, um, take something else instead and be, be sedated. She doesn't really want to do that. So next thing she knows there's a phone call, uh, the nurse answers and it's, uh, is it her husband or it's somebody relative? I can't remember. Yeah, her mum, that's right. Yeah, is in hospital. So uh James, I think the brother's name is, he who takes takes her off to the station. Oh no, it's George, played by James Villiers. Oh, I knew James. You're, you're doing that as well now. James Villiers, <laughs> James Villiers, who was a uh, like uh, an actor, character actor specialising in posh people. Yeah, yeah. I, I love. I think this is the first time I saw him, and I found him quite boring. But I subsequently <laughs> grew to love him because of how great he is as like the villain in Blood from the Mummy's Tomb and things like that. Yeah. Um, so, and he, he's great at, at playing posh, slimy sods. Essentially, yes. <laughs> like in Roman Polanski's Repulsion. So, yeah. Sorry, Paul. I'm yeah, no, that's okay. so. Recap. So, um, and and as soon as they they're gone, uh, Barbara's friend Lucy has uh, come round, um, and she says it was her that had made the phone call, and she's been hiding in the garage. And Lucy been hiding in the garage. Lucy's yeah. played by Britt Eklund, Brit who, by the way, was yeah. another big star. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So it's really interesting with a lot of these amicus films that that they actually seem to be able to get quite 
major um, cast members, quite famous cast members, because presumably because of the, the short amount of time that they were needed. Exactly, yeah. And in fact, do you remember Mark Gates's history of horror documentary, which yeah. is astonishingly 10 years old now? I remember him doing a bit about Amicus and he interviewed the great David Warner, who's in From Beyond the Grave, and said, yeah. so why, why did you want to do... Uh, well, why do you think people, actors like you, wanted to do these kind of movies in those days? And he went, well, firstly, it was work. Yeah. And secondly, yeah. it was quick. Yeah. So, yeah. so like you say, they're on set for like two days and then just yeah. disappear. And squeeze it in between jobs. And, you know. and, you know, this is a remarkable cast in this movie, yeah. but they all are, all the Amicus anthologies. Because of the way they're shot and structured, they, they, every story is built around one or two fairly, you know, respected or big name actors. Mm. So, so, yeah. So this, so then Lucy basically goes around uh, doing things, cutting the the phone line, uh, drugging her brother, um, and then ultimately killing him with a pair of scissors. Um, and the nurse comes back having it, it will be a hoax that there was nobody in the hospital um, and she discovers that something is, is desperately wrong and then she gets killed by Lucy and then the, the end bit of it is that we realise that Lucy isn't real uh, and it's actually just Barbara all along yeah yeah so, so in fact, in fact, uh, it's like a horror version of Drop Dead Fred. So we've already had. <laughs> now we've got. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. That's a wonderful concept in itself. I wasn't expecting you to say that. Can I just say, as I just said, that the previous story was like the best bit of the film. This one is is clearly, I think, the worst bit of the film. Yes. I don't think you guys are going to disagree with me on that, even though. I do think Charlotte Rampling's performance is great, actually. She's really working hard to make, uh, uh, what's her name? Is she called Barbara? Um, Barbara, yeah. yeah. To make Barbara sympathetic. Um, and also, uh, talking of the music, I think this is probably the main bit of the film where I think the music is mainly Douglas Gamley doing his own stuff rather yeah. than using classical um, material. And it's, again, both it's really in tune with Rampling's performance, um, and and that, I, I really like this kind of sense of sadness that, that kind of follows her around. Yeah. But as a little kind of horror story, it's not as tightly plotted as, as the other bits of the film so far. So, so uh, you do feel sorry for her, although you can yeah. you can see the twist coming. But you yeah. the whole the whole thing though about her being. Um, Tightly controlled by the nurse, by her brother. It's all. It's all got a bit of a free no. Britney vibe to it, hasn't it? <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's gonna. That's gonna date this episode. A few years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, not at all. These these programs will be on Netflix forever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah it's yeah. It, I I agree, but I I thought I thought it's this it's. The thing is, it's just really obviously signposted for the minute Britt Eklund arrives. Yes, yeah. Yes, um, that, 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 that they're the same person. Yeah. Um, Although, I, th I, I think what he's trying to... Sorry to interrupt you, Bob. Yeah. I'll just finish my thought. Um, I think 
the business with the pills is supposed yeah. to throw you off because she takes the pills, which you, the, I think yeah. they're meant to think this is what keeps her hallucinations away. And as yeah. soon as she takes the pills, Louis C appears. But what that yeah. did to me was I just went, what? I don't understand what are the pills for? Because she seems to really want to take them. Yeah. And everybody's telling her not to. That's <laughs> what they That's actually okay. thought. There's some kind of, um, I thought there's some kind of um, completely unspecified class A drug, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, well, I mean, there's... that would make sense, but people just say, call them pills as if they're yeah, a medication. I don't think they've just, I don't think they've um, well, really she th- thought it through. But they're, 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 I mean, she's hidden them, they're, they're, they're hidden from when she was previously at home, and she's hidden yeah. them in the hair rollers, hasn't she? They're not, yeah. They're, 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 yeah, I mean, maybe she has been prescribed. Maybe, they, maybe they, they're not prescription, maybe they're some sort of hallucinogenic. There is a, I do have an issue with this yep. uh, thing, and maybe with this section, and maybe I missed something. Who makes the phone call? Oh, it is. Well, it, it, presumably it's made by Barbara because Lucy uh, says she did it. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Because um, they so just put her to bed. Yeah. And, and then presum- she'd have to run to the garage and make the phone call. Yeah, well, presumably she doesn't have a phone. Well, it's a weird house because presumably they don't have a phone in the bedroom, but they have one in the garage. Yeah, <laughs> just, just which is a different line. Well, 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 yeah, yeah, but it's a nice house, though. It's not, it's not totally inconceivable that they, no, there's, a, there's no. a, that there's another phone in there somewhere. But yeah, it, it is a bit of a logical problem. Um, yeah. But I'm going to say something in defence of this. Well, not, not, not necessarily in this story, but, but in its place in the film. Um, yeah. It's a quite striking that, that the gender balance is actually right. So there's four patients, two male, two female. Which, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, for, for 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 an early seventies horror film, that that that, that is uh, slightly unusual. And I, yeah, that's true actually. And yeah. it's really great that you get two female focused um, stories. Um, and yeah. also one one of them has two women who are friends, not enemies, as well. You know, even though yeah. they turn out to be the same person in a schizophrenic yeah. kind of way. But just the fact that you. You know, it's quite unusual for women to be characterised as being friends like that. So, yeah, um, yeah that, that is really nice. And I do just like, see, you know, Charlotte Rampling and Britt Eklund, they're two different kinds of icons. And having yeah. them being together, and they look like they're from different worlds as well, the way they dress and stuff in this film. But they're, they're playing best friends and they're, you know... It's really weird and, and interesting, I think. Well, I mean, they're, they're exactly they're the um, the Phoebe Cates and Rick Mail of their day, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> it's quite nice. interesting as well that that Barbara's sort of hallucinogenic sort of friend is is Swedish. I think that's quite <laughs> odd. Well, who wouldn't imagine <laughs> a Swedish best friend? If you have the I, I, I think I think I think a lot of um, well, I don't know. I'm just thinking a lot of a lot of males might uh, imagine they uh, have a female blonde Swedish well, yeah, woman as a best friend. <laughs> but I, I, think, I think the point the point the point is that it's not like that. It's not done for the the but this is no it's yeah, not, yeah. No, not at all. <laughs> yeah. Um I, I, I think as well it's sort of um, I I'm not entirely convinced that Brett Eklund is 
a great actress. Well, maybe she's maybe she's not, but she not I mean, in but, English. But she was, maybe. But, no. yeah. Yeah. but 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 she was a a big star, and she's an un, yeah, un, undeniable, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. fantastic screen presence. And as, as anyone, yeah. well, well, the the Wicker Man and Man with the Golden yeah. Gun, and you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. it's uh, yeah, yeah. So, so I mean. I, yeah, I don't have any particular problem with 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 her performance, but it's no. I think it's right to say it's very different from um, Charlotte Rampling, who's again very different um, yeah. to James Villiers. <laughs> it's it's yeah. Uh, yeah, that's true. And and I remember they the thing about Rampling and Villiers, they don't seem like siblings. You know, the start no. when he's driving her, I thought, is he her dad? But she's calling him by his first name. Yeah, then, well, I I thought that as well because, like you said earlier, she's dressed in what looks like a, a school uniform um, yeah i don't think it is but she's wearing a tie no she's she... a little kind of odd and it's it's that sort of stripy school tie yeah thing. Uh -huh. so yeah but i i do think the story would probably be stronger if, if they'd not they, they've been more careful with the casting and, and the elements like that i mean i'm sure in robert block's original story he wasn't envisaging brit eckland yeah as lucy and things like that and I, I think that, um, you know, ultimately it's all about, uh, we, we're led to think the motivation is is because George wants the money that, that um, Barbara yeah. has inherited, which again kind of ties the motivation to um, the Walter and Ruth thing in the first story where, you know, he's yeah. a kept man and it's all her money. Um, and that all makes sense, but... But because of the casting and that, you kind of at the beginning of the story, you're going, "What's going on? Is he her dad? Where are their yeah. parents?" So, you know, so I've, I've got, I've got a really like, um, I've got something that I think makes this uh, maybe a little bit clearer, which is, of course, these are American stories. These are adapted yeah. from yeah. uh, like um, much older stories. So this was a 70s film, but these these stories are. 40s, 50s, um, a lot of the source material. Oh, and I didn't realise there was that. Set, and set in America. Um, so um, when, so sometimes you, you could probably just translate them and it's fine, but but if when you start having uh, like James Villiers playing an upper class uh, English guy, you, you bring in the whole uh, English class system, which in America is just completely <laughs> yeah. not there, and and then you, you and then you're completely changing what, what, what the story is. not not what it's about exactly, but the whole relationship dynamic between all the characters is completely changed because because it's a different society it's taking place in. So um, yeah. maybe maybe that makes less of a difference in in, in the, the yeah. other stories, but in this one, I, th I think it really does, and that's probably why you're. You, you're thinking that this does not feel quite authentic. Yeah. I wonder. I wonder whether this one actually could have done with a bit more time to just to 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 breathe a little bit and just and a few more minutes of screen yeah. time. Yeah, and just just to kind of expand those characters a little bit, perhaps build a bit more tension with the character of Lucy, because she's like bam straight in with the kind of murderous stuff almost immediately and, and well it's escape before murder isn't it but yeah yeah, yeah 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 whereas the first two stories are very much like they are straightforward stories there's no backstory really it's all about what's happening yeah. now yeah and they set up what's going to happen and then they work through it whereas this it has history with lucy and, and with barbara and her mental problems and all this stuff and 
you need to kind of really understand that, and there isn't the time for you yeah. to settle into it. Um, but I do think that it's it's good fun, and yeah, um, yeah. I th- I think that the, the crazy casting and and the interesting wardrobe choices and all that do <laughs> just kind of add up to it, it continuing to be good fun. And the final two things I want to say about this segment are just knife down the cleavage, which happens to poor <laughs> Megs Jenkins from The Innocents, bless her, and also. I love the, the just the final shot with Charlotte Rampling doing the really unsettling evil laugh yeah. and also the looking in the mirror and yeah. seeing Lucy's face in the mirror, which Roy Ward Baker has set up from the very beginning of the story where Charlotte Rampling kind of looks in the mirror at herself but when she starts to tell her story. And also it is a bit of a yeah. callback to, I think, it's a long time since I've seen it, but isn't the transformation scene in Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde done mainly through the mirror, which I remember finding really effective. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, I think that is the case. Yeah, yes, mm. yes, yes, indeed. I, I think that's fair enough. And, and um, I think good mention of The Innocence there, which is an absolutely it's amazing great. film. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's one of the best. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I let's just have one thing okay, that I, I, I like. Let's do it, Paul. Then we'd better move on before, before midnight. Before, before it's, uh, <laughs> all right. No, all it was was that um, I, I, I think this gets points for um, when the nurse comes back in and goes to uh, dial out to, to the emergency services and realise the phone is dead. She doesn't do the thing of hammering the receiver. Oh, yeah. That they quite often do in, in sort of US films. Oh, goes, yeah. oh yeah, no, that's that's broken. So yeah, points for that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough. Good, good final point. Um, so because we're going to move on now to to, to the fourth <laughs> and final story, where, where which really isn't a story at all. No. It, it kind of it bleeds completely into the framing story, doesn't it? It's called mm. Mannequins of Horror. Um, so. so um, none of these titles are on screen, by the way, but these are the accepted yeah, titles yeah. For, for them. And, and it's it's Herbert Lom as uh, a guy called Byron, who's introduced as, as, as a doctor. So, um, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, Byron? Yeah. What's, wrong, what's wrong with Brian? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why do we have to reach? No. The, the, yeah. Um, so, so um, but Byron... Um, it seems pretty together uh, when Dr. Martin's talking to him initially and then um, he's actually going, oh yeah, and then I'm going to transfer my consciousness into one of these dolls. And yeah. Dr. Martin's <laughs> like, right, of course you are! <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that point, that's the point to leave, really. Isn't it? Yeah. But, 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 there's, but there's no flashback explaining how no. Byron got here. He's just, no. he's just created... A, lo- a load of dolls, which he says are perfect replicas with tiny working human brains and organs in them. But, <laughs> but they, they look like um, uh, these like wind-up robots with human heads instead of robot heads, yeah. don't they? Um, I, I suspect that might be what they are. <laughs> <laughs> but the reason the reason there's no backstory here is because we're supposed to believe this is Doctor Star, aren't we? So well, well, I mean that's what they're trying to push you to. So they can't have a backstory for him because. 
Yeah, but, but they, they, they have already, like Rutherford said, that the, the, the Doctor Star's got, um, uh, like, disappeared into another personality with an imagined backstory. Yeah. So, so it could. Oh, okay, fair enough. But, yeah. but yeah, you're right. You're right. This one is most like obvious in the. Yeah. The, it, and he, what well, the the guy Byron actually has an obvious rivalry with Rutherford, doesn't he? He talks yeah. about it. So. Yeah. Um, well, so, well, well, indeed, and and it develops doesn't it because uh, despite the ridiculousness of the scenario um By- byron does manage to transfer his consciousness in- in- <laughs> of into, course. In- into just the- by stirring at it really yeah. hard in- and yeah. you know what i love is the way that byron stirs at the thing which he's holding in his hands and somehow after presumably transferring his own consciousness out of his head his now consciousness body knows to gently put the little mannequin on the floor i thought that was all so can... i thought i don't yeah. I, I, didn't, I didn't understand I, I didn't understand how that works frankly yeah, yeah but yeah. but, uh, but all, all, although it was necessary because um then the, the the little byron doll escapes the the room um, and, and goes down through the dump, dumb waiter where Rutherford and Martin are arguing because Martin has more progressive ideas about um, yeah. the treatment of mental illness than he's found at this, this asylum. And, and, and Rutherford is rather unfortunately going, well, actually, um, you know, Dr. Starr used to let... Um, Byron have the dolls, but I think we should. I think we should take him away. I think it's this yeah. end. I'm gonna. It's a bit of tough love for Byron, and, and, and the Byron doll goes. Well, I'm not really having this. Picks up uh, <laughs> um, Doctor Rutherford's scalpel, which he's been. He's had because he's been talking about performing lobotomies, hasn't he? Because you know, you wouldn't think think of necessarily of a, a, a mental health doctor having scalpels and. But, but they have explained it anyway he picks up the scalpel and rams it into the back of rutherford's head and then uh Mar- martin des- decides to um stamp on the uh the the, the, the doll realizing As you what well yeah. Yeah. you know you, you do just automatically stamp whenever you see a little work <laughs> man and i'm sitting there don't you but i suppose um, he has just murdered someone well, well exactly yeah. And, and, yeah. but but then the um there's a big like scream up upstairs and, it, and the human byron has has actually been stamped on by a giant imaginary foot <laughs> a terry gilliam-esque foot just kind of <laughs> came down into shots oh, but to be fair so we have already had voodoo in an earlier story yeah so I, I, it, I was just it kind of that it kind of makes sense it's not out of place even though it might yeah, it, seem seem to it, be it's so, it the theme yeah all right. One one thing I really liked, and one thing I didn't like, which you just reminded me of. Right? One thing I really yeah. like is Herbert Lom's performance. I'm not always a fan of Herbert Lom no. by any means, but I, 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 because I, I, he he's the kind of actor who's great, but whose performances I don't really in, enjoy. Um, yeah. But it tends to be a bit harsh for me, but um, mm. a bit intense, a bit harsh for me. But here, I think it's just the right balance, and I really like it. Now he had a, I mean, I mean. I remember, he actually may be better suited to comedy. Yeah, Pink yes, and he had a tr- tremendous failure, really, as the Phantom of the Opera, didn't he? For, for Hammer, I've never seen that. You know, um, you, you know that that's carrying on a tradition that lasts right back to when it was first released, because nobody saw it then. Right. <laughs> oh dear. <Okay. laughs> but but um, actually here. 
I, I know I know this is like damning the fake praise a, a bit. So he's not someone I generally like. Here I do like it. Maybe I, I, I'm misremembering uh, the way I feel about his performances. Maybe just because, you know, I think of him as that old guy from The Pope Must Die, but actually, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, wow. actually, he's good here. So I'm, 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 yeah. I'm saying I like Herbert Long. And, and I the... think the stuff that he has to say requires the kind of Herbert Long force to be taken seriously. You know, he he Maybe. really has some yeah. nonsense to sell. Yes, I have <laughs> made these little men, and inside each of them is the <laughs> eyes were made to see, the brain was made to think. He's got to say all this stuff, and he he really pulls it off. So um, yeah, so, so so maybe I like him when yeah I, I like him when he's doing that. Actually, he doesn't he doesn't make you believe it what he's saying, but he makes you believe he believes it, and that's you know achievement enough, I think. Well, yeah, then, I, then, then yeah, absolutely. Then I can then I can enjoy it. But um, okay, so the thing I don't like, which it's not really a criticism because it's just the the genre it is, right? But but Robert Block. Um, Started out as a like back in the 30s, didn't he? As a very young writer, as a member of the Lovecraft circle, and yeah. and those kinds of horror short stories are my favourite. You know, the uh, kind of nameless horrors and the the bottomless abyss of terror just beneath the surface. That I, I love, the, but the, the 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 kind of devices in all of these stories are kind of a bit more. You know, they're they're a bit. Less prosaic, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. you know, you say, "Oh, it's voodoo." <laughs> yeah, 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 like, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, the, um, <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm, I'm not saying that I think we they are good stories, but it's, it, it's not. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I could I could have done with 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 you know Cthulhu <laughs> at some point. You know, <laughs> I know what you're saying. I think. We were just talking about how the first two stories in this film kind of don't need backstory and the third has not enough backstory. Yeah. This one works fine, but in a way, the fact that he's able or thinks he's able to create little human beings requires some Cthulhu-sized backstory. You know, what's he really been doing? Yeah. And it's not its not really a very good end to this. Uh, thematically, it's, it's not... A, a great end to this movie that's been exploring different forms of madness. However, I do think it's great though. Yeah. yeah. Um, even though the, the the little robot men are silly and the you know the the Herbert Long puts it down on the floor uh, because he can't get there by itself. <laughs> but on the other hand, somehow it's able to climb up into a dumbwaiter by itself, which yeah. The Roy Ward Baker films ingeniously by having someone hold it up under the camera just out of shot and like just push it into the dumbwaiter. Um, and all that stuff's sort of daft, but on the other hand, you know, you've got I think you've got Robert Powell and Patrick McGee and Herbert Long all being great and um, leading up to the kind of climax of the film, which I think is a great. Well, that's so. absolutely fair and i think that does take us to basically the conclusion of the framing story and i think uh, uh dan, dan do you want to go for that sure so um having found the um pulverized body of byron following the uh, the mannequins watching um dr martin says so that's the end of byron star 
and the orderly played by Jeffrey Belden says, so you made your guess then? And, and um, Powell just says, it was obvious. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, but then he, he goes to the orderly's office intending to phone the police, I think, to come and yeah. take mm. away the pulverised body and the, and the murdered Dr. Rutherford, I guess. But uh, Bailden goes, no, don't go in there, sir, but can't stop him. And when Powell goes into the room, he finds a corpse on the uh, on a gurney in there. And um, Jeffrey Bolden says, uh, there was no time to dispose of him. And Robert Powell says, dispose of it? Who is he? And Jeffrey Bolden says, his name was Max <laughs> <Yeah>. Reynolds. <laughs> and Robert Powell says, the orderly. And then looks at Jeffrey Belden, who does a great kind of eyebrow-raised evil face and says, yes, I'm afraid your guess was wrong. I am Dr. Star. <laughs> at which point, Robert Powell tries to get past him. And Jeffrey Belden garrots him with a stethoscope, which is very stylish. And, uh, and then once Powell is dead and he dies with one of the most pronounced uses of the dun 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 <laughs> phrase of music in any movie um uh, <laughs> Bailden does a great mad bit where he listens for his pulse with the stethoscope yeah. that he's just strangled him with and then does the best evil laugh in cinema it's brilliant yeah although clearly post dubbed but dubbed by Bailden himself that you can tell it is him mm. but he's kind of not doing it in the moment it's, uh, it, it's just obviously spent like an afternoon in the recording booth doing different <laughs> evil laughs and they loop them as long as they can. And it, but it's great. And then and then you finally got uh, like a little epilogue where another doctor arrives at the asylum. The door opens. It, it's bailed and the guy says, I've come about the appointments. He said, yeah. He says, yes, I, I've been expecting you. Uh, please come this way. And as the guy goes in, bailed and just closes it as he's going to close the door behind him says better keep the door closed and keep out the drafts as uh, looking directly into camera with a kind of cheeky <laughs> smile as dr star used to say and then door slam music to the to full volume and credits yeah. and um a lot of the amicus movies kind of end with someone looking at the camera like and now who's next perhaps yeah. You, in oh, Tales from the, the Crypt, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but this is like the best one, um, yeah, by a mile because it's a it the actual it's kept to that last second, that last <laughs> twinkle, and it's just so good. And Bailden, who was like he, he, he's in, in small roles in a lot of horror films and goes back to Dracula 58, Dracula, and you know, he only died quite recently, he acted for a long time, he's always good value. Um, I just think he's he's brilliantly subtle at this kind of appealing kind of evil and craziness. Um, he, he can convey so much with just a little look. And um, for the last two minutes of the movie, he's the star of the movie, and I think it's a great ending. Um, I also think, it's, uh, as I'm sure all the people have said, it's just a fantastic twist that yeah. it was never any of the patients. It was the orderly who was Dr. Star all the time. No, I, I I agree. So I, I think I think this is the strongest framing sequence of of any of the Amicus, and, well, one, and some of them are yeah, quite good yeah. as well. But this is the strongest yeah. one. One thing that did occur to me is what bothered me was with um, Herbert Lom's character, uh, where he got the little 
organs and bits and bobs for for his little uh, yeah well how did he make thing. them yeah but, 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 then, but then i thought the whole of that upstairs bit um clearly that bit of the asylum clearly no one is is doing anything to to look after it rutherford's not doing anything to sort of help these people necessarily there because the orderly is is a, a patient as well so i it got me thinking that actually the body of the original orderly that's in in the office is that all there Has oh my god he's been harvesting been the organs giving bits to the, to the other <laughs> possibly and then it, then yeah, it started brilliant. and i haven't got any further with this but it started me thinking well there's the guy who's the tailor who's making suits and bits and bobs. Is is there some weird thing going on there? And, and it got me thinking a bit deeper about that. I didn't really get any further than that, but it's like, and, and that just makes that whole, to me, makes that whole sort of setup upstairs in the asylum just completely that crazy be, on a whole other level. Yeah, you could, he could have been getting the tailor to make bits yeah. of clothing which reanimated the, the dead organs and, and yeah. could all get all together yeah yeah just yeah. one rewrite away from yeah. all being beautifully cohesive yeah it's not quite there but it, it, it yeah it got me thinking i mean there is a yeah uh, I, I mean i think the simpler explanation which obviously we, we can reject is that um star can be um take the persona of Max Reynolds because uh, Rutherford can't get up there because Rutherford's in the wheelchair because ah. of the injury that, that was previously yeah. inflicted by, by Star. Ah, and he, and he yes. only speaks to him on the phone, so he doesn't realise he's not speaking to the real the, the real Reynolds. And, and so the real Reynolds is basically um, just pretending... Uh, so Star's pretending to be Reynolds, isn't mm. he? He's like feeding them and, and everything. So... Yeah. so um, I don't know that the, the upstairs has descended into chaos, but then, but then by the end of the film, the whole asylum's in chaos, yeah. isn't it? Because um, in order for the obviously insane um, star to be back in charge like he was, or everyone who knew that that he was mad had, had to be dealt with. I mean, it could be a complete bloodbath inside there. Yeah, right. but that, that's the thing, and the thing is, is that obviously for most of that film. Star is acting completely straight, like he's completely normal, mm. and and it's only right at the end that he kind of lets his real self out. So what's to say that that, that whole area is is isn't some kind of weird bloodbath, mm. and and it's just this horrific place, torture chamber type place almost. Um, yeah. But they but they but but it, it's sort of hidden because. Um, Star is actually very good at appearing normal, yeah, yeah, and yeah. making everything appear as normal. So I think there might just be this. Uh, I mean, it probably isn't because it probably wasn't given that much thought. But there's there is this whole potential other layer to it, which I think makes it a, a, a far more, you know, adds a sort of creepier, horrible level to it. You think about it a bit more. It's most of the Amicos twists at the end are. Uh, well, they were dead all the time. Yeah, 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 that's that. You know, that happens again and again. Uh, yeah. Which is that's basically the only other twist they ever did. Isn't it? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so, and also, I, I, I think what you're saying, Paul, just shows us that we should have had Asylum 2 and Asylum 3. Yeah, yeah. You know, oh. you, could have, you could have had... Yeah, exactly. There, there's a whole world to be explored there. Although, in fairness, this isn't the only um, Robert Block's scripted um, Amicus Portman 2 film, is it? I think no, uh, House of Drip Blood... One. Yes, exactly. The third. This is the third of three. Yeah, I think. Yeah, he Torture wrote Garden. Torture Garden, and then House of the Dreadwood, and then yeah. this, and yeah. and they're all really strong. And oh, by the way, you know, off. I think Mark Gatiss and a few other people of, of the year said, "Wouldn't it be great to take the um, the best story, the best stories from each of the different Amicus portmanteaus and put them together and make one film?" Yeah. And I think. Maybe I'm prejudiced, but I feel like the best story is always the one with Peter Cushing in. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, and also the best, uh, although actually that's not the case with this film, but the, you know, the, the linking stories with him in, which is Dr. Terror's House of Horrors and From Beyond the Grave, are also pretty good. So, yeah. get those two, just have wall to wall Cushing. <laughs> that's yeah. what I want. But, You'd um, have to find some room for the um, John Pertwee, Ingrid Pitt. One from House yeah. that's, that's true. That is great. That is really good. Although <laughs> I was going to say, you know, the best story I think in Torture Garden is the Cushing one, which is the Edgar Allan Poe, uh, the man who collected Poe story. And then I think probably the best story in the House that Drips Blood is uh, what is it? The, I can't remember the name of the story, but anyway, it's the one where Cushing and Joss Ackland and, and there's the waxwork. Oh, it's just called the the wax works. Yeah. Um, and then the, the best story in this one. So, you know, so somehow, and it, it, it's a coincidence, maybe it's a coincidence, but, but Cushing does inveigle his way into the best stories in all these movies. Well, maybe he got first choice. Well, yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, that, 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 that isn't that. No, that's an interesting idea. Do you don't mean remake? You just mean re edit. So it's. Yes. yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That, no, that yeah, that is a good idea. Um, we could re-edit all of them into one like twelve-hour-long film. That's the less good idea. <laughs> <laughs> wow! The <laughs> <It's like, laughs> Zack Snyder cut. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the oh, films. In, inject Amicus into your eyeballs with a midnight <laughs> screening. It'd be like the warp of horror movies. And yeah. Was it right. the warp? Ken Campbell's famous twelve-hour-long play, or whatever. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Yes. So, um, I think probably this is the longest episode we've ever recorded. <laughs> I do <laughs> so, apologise. No, no, it's, it's 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 been it's been really really good. Yes, um, yeah. So, so we do have do we have any closing thoughts then on asylum? Any any points you wanted to make you haven't yet made? Any any, any uh, Damascan conversions? Any anything like that? Wow, um, I think I've probably said everything I want to say. I'm, I'm surprised to find myself saying that. How about you, Paul? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I've said said everything. Um, I just will quickly say that I did. Re- I do really like this. It's, it's a really fun, uh, great film. Yeah, I, I'll add to that. Yeah, I, I think it was just as good as I've always found it, and I'm sure I'll watch it again. Um, oh, and I, I will say um, that. The bit where Peter Cushing is killed uh, is that really interesting shot where the camera starts low angle and then as he's shot, it kind of pivots upwards so he falls down 
in, in kind of long shots. And when I was a film student, we, I showed that to a few of my friends and we called that move the Amicus Fall. And we tried, <laughs> we tried to recreate it in a number of student films, but without much success, because it's really weird, interesting, well-done shots. Um, <laughs> no, ex excellent. So, I mean, I've, my closing point is that actually I'm quite surprised by the low IMDb scores that not oh. just this film, but all, all the Amicus um, Portman 2 films seem to have. They're all like round about six point something. And, and, and these, these are clearly eights mm. at least. So, yeah, yeah. so if, you're, you, if, you're, um, if you feel like voting on IMDb, get on there, you know, vote early, <laughs> vote often, <laughs> get, get this up. <laughs> I, I shall do that myself. Okay. <laughs> it's a four star film. Absolutely, certainly, Absolutely. Um, and uh, I just want to say thank you very much for inviting me on for this. It's been such fun. And by the way, you know, your—I love the intro to your podcast. Every week, you have the theme from Quite a Must Two, followed by Peter Cushing saying, "Monster, we're British," you know, which is like it just sums up so much of what I love about about these movies and, and this genre so yeah. it's, it's just perfect I, 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 loved it. I think it's great that you recognize Quatermass too so that, that's good well you know it, it's it's a movie that um, I continue to loads of people never know that Quatermass 2 exists and even, even people who've seen Quatermass and the pit sometimes don't realize it's a sequel and uh, and nobody knows that the first ever sequel with the number two in it was Quatermass 2. Um, so I just like um, well, people, people always fixate on Brian Don Levy being an American Quatermass, and they don't they don't go look. It's got Sid James in a straight role in it. That's well, yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> just a few weeks ago, I showed it to a friend of mine who had no idea what it was, um, and that was the main thing that he just was wowed about. It's like, yeah. whoa, I. Sid James getting machine gunned to death in the face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. I'm going to call it there and we'll move on to the last and most important bit of the whole show, which is the social media stuff. You know? Um, yeah. Right. So if, if you want to find us and add to the, the length of this episode by talking even longer about Asylum, you can contact us at Facebook, where we're very British horror. On Twitter, where we're at Very Brit Horror, or you can email us at a very British horror at gmail.com. And Dan, where can you be found on the web? Oh, well, we are at um, amnowpodcast.com. On Twitter, we are at amnowpodcast, I think. Oh my God, I can't remember my own Twitter <laughs> handle. Um, I am at Life Is About Fic. Um, and you can find my reviews on uh, We Made This as well. Um, and my blog is uh, lifeisaboutfiction.wordpress.com. So, yeah. But <laughs> sorry, basically, I put you if, on the spot there. Yeah, sorry. But if you go to <laughs> unknowpodcast.com, yeah, yeah, everything is there. So, brilliant. Thank you. Great. Well, all that remains then is to say thank you very much. And until next time, I've been Chris Denton. And I'm still Paul Monk. Bye. I, was... oh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was being invited to say who I am. No, no, oh, you, yeah. you, you are absolutely being invited to say who you are. Oh, well. Okay. Okay, well, I'll... <laughs>
he's got, sorry, you've got a little bit of editing to do here. No, we'll leave it with and, him. It's fine. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I've been TD Velasquez. Hey. <laughs> <laughs>